If you've ridden your bike in the dirt much, then chances are you've dropped it at one point or another, probably a lot. Now the question is, the last time you dropped it, what did you do? Did you hang your head in shame? Did you pick it up as fast as you can so that nobody else would see it? Or maybe you took the opportunity to snap a photo and have a chuckle with your riding friends. Well, if you were Jim Hyde from Rawhide Adventures, you'd likely be honking your horn and cheering. I want everybody to whoop and holler and lay on the horn. So what's the deal? Did you drop the bike because you lacked the skills for what you were doing? Or maybe it's just one of those things that happens when you're riding in the dirt. Or maybe it's a little of both. But the real question is, should we care? Today on Adventure Rider Radio, we have another one of our exclusive rider skill segments. And today, your instructor is Jim Hyde from one of the world's top adventure training schools for motorcycles, Rawhide Adventures. Today, we're gonna talk about dropping the bike, the psychology of it, the potential damage, how to do it, and the reasons behind it. You're also gonna hear the story behind the making of Rawhide Adventures and how beginning with a dozen Jeeps, an unthinkable event, did an about face for Rawhide that ultimately ended up making them into a BMW poster child for ADV motorcycle training. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. Maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lambert. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com the MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. My name is Jim Hyde. I am the owner of Rawhide Adventures, and we are the only officially sponsored off-road riding school that BMW sponsors in the United States. Jim, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Well, it's about time we, we got you on. I mean, as you said, you're the, you're the only company sponsored by BMW. You've got to be doing something right, but you've been doing this for a long time. We actually started rawhide back in 2002 and oddly enough motorcycles were not part of the equation um, we we started as a jeep uh, travel company um, that had been the attention actually but um, i'll give you a very short backstory on a a, a complete backflip we had to do on on the business model 
Uh, Ride was originally going to be a Jeep travel company, and I'd spent the entire summer of 2001 in Europe marketing our services to European adventure travel companies. And uh, I had a dozen Jeeps and some fancy big rigs that were designed to provide uh, hospitality and accommodations in the middle of nowhere. And I flew home from Europe on September 9th of 2001. And a couple of days later, with that whole ugliness with the World Trade Center and all that, um, everything changed. And uh, so we uh, uh, started off then with motorcycles, working with uh, the American market. And that's how we got started in bikes. And here we are today. What did you do with the Jeeps? I mean, you've got all these Jeeps lined up. Uh, I just sold them all. <laughs> I had no choice. Uh, um, it took it took about a week, and all the contracts that I had lined up. Uh, you know, most contracts that involve travel have some sort of a clause about terrorism, civil unrest, etc. And uh, those were the uh, clauses that got activated to kill the contracts. So probably a good thing in the long run because the motorcycle business has been been a good and fun thing to be involved in. What made you think that you couldn't market Jeep tours to uh, Americans? You know, the truth of the matter is that America is still the wild, wild west in the eyes of folks who live outside the boundaries of the U.S. And, you know, most Americans that have a desire to cruise the backcountry own a Jeep or a four-wheel drive pickup truck or something like that. So um, to the Europeans... Uh, and you have to understand, too, the, the European mentality. Um, so many countries, it's so closed. Uh, and, and what I mean with that is the, the population densities of Europe are really high. There's not a lot of available backcountry to go explore. So America looms as a, a, a very, very high-profile point of interest for people who have the interest in exploring and getting out into the backcountry. And the American West, in particular, because of cowboys and Indians, uh, has a great deal of allure to uh, to the European traveler. So you decided to switch to motorcycles. Now, now before that, with the with the four wheel drive thing, it, does the jeeping come from a background of four wheeling for you? For me, it does. Um, I grew up as a kid in the in the California deserts, and um, um, my dad had a jeep. A bunch of our friends had jeeps. I, I had a dune buggy that I used to bomb around on the dirt roads and trails uh, of the Mojave Desert. And, you know, for me, it's it's where I grew up. It's a magical place. Uh, we spend a lot of time there today with Rawhide as well. So, uh, yeah, I do have a background in that. And where do motorcycles enter your life? Well, that ties a little bit to the story of what we can talk about here. Um, I represent a how do, how do I want to say this? Um, demographically, my story is very similar to the stories of an awful lot of people who are getting into the adventure bike world. I had a dirt bike also when I was uh, 17 years old in the, living in the Mojave Desert. My two forms of entertainment were a little Yamaha 125 MX and a dune buggy. And uh, I sold both to go to college. And then I did not really look back on the motorcycle world uh, for 25 years. And uh, when I did, um, I, I got a chance to ride an adventure bike for the first time. And that's a different story to tell. <laughs> you mean the actual riding of it? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, 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 the short version of the story is that I was, I was in Europe on a vacation in the Dolomite Mountains of Italy, which are just spectacular. And I was cruising around in a minivan with some friends looking out the window on this twisty cobblestone road. And the idea sort of hit me, wow, I'd love to ride a motorcycle here. And uh, of course, you know, once you get a thought like that in your head, then they tend to stick. So I came home and started researching opportunities to uh, rent a bike or take a tour in the Dolomites. And one thing led to another. And I booked myself on a... Uh, motorcycle tour with a company called Beaches Motorcycle Adventures. And uh, the only bike that they had for me at that point in time when I booked was a BMW GS. And that was my very first experience riding an adventure bike. And is that mainly street riding? Yeah, mostly. Um, in fact, there's more 
tie into our overall story here with uh, the fact that, yes, it was a street ride. But uh, when I found out the bike that I was going to be assigned on this tour, I did a little research and I got the impression that it was a motorcycle that some could take off road. So I tinkered with that a little bit on the few dirt roads that I saw as I traveled about Italy and, uh, and Slovenia. And uh, I quickly learned that the skills that I had when I was a kid riding a 125 were not quite adequate for handling <laughs> the big dog off road. And uh, so I turned around, went back to the pavement and spent the rest of the time riding on the street. But uh, nonetheless, it was a wonderful experience. And it was my first introduction to the adventure bike world. Before you decided to come up with this Jeep tourism thing, and then eventually Rawhide Adventures as it stands today, what were you doing before that? I have been in sales my entire life, um, mostly in high-end, expensive machinery. Um, I have sold everything from industrial laser systems to Boeing uh, to uh, machine tools. Um, that was what I did at very first was uh, just machine tools, mills and lathes and uh, metalworking equipment. Then I went to lasers and from lasers, I spent most of my time working for General Electric selling uh, their high-end medical equipment, MRI scanners, CT scanners, cardiac cath labs, things like that. And is there a point where you sort of wake up or go into work one day and think, I don't want to do this anymore? There was a point. Um, and it, it, for a sales guy, it's uh, it's a pretty common story. Um, General Electric, when I joined them, was number three in their market space. And, of course, GE's goal is if they can't be number one in any market that they're in, they, they choose usually to back out of that market. But they felt they could achieve the number one position. And over a three or four year period, they did. And as all big companies do, once they're number one, they start you know, a publicly traded company. They're looking for ways to... Uh, increase profits, increase the value of their shares. So uh, one of the first targets is salesman's commissions. <laughs> so you work hard to get them there. And then once you get them there, they start to cut you back. That's exactly the way it works in the corporate world. So uh, at that point, I uh, actually, I loved working there. It, it, you know, when you have the opportunity to deal with the cutting edge of technology, uh, especially cutting edge for good, trying to heal people. Um, it's fascinating and it was exhilarating and it was fun and it was fulfilling. But then, you know, company decides to start chiseling away at your income. And I don't, I, I hold no ill will about that. It's the way it works. So I said, it's time to, time to, time to quit and take charge of my own destiny. And so at that point I did start Rawhide. So you started Rawhide, you went for the Jeeps. Now you've scrapped the idea for the Jeeps and you've got bikes there. What was the first year or two like? Really damn tough. <laughs> um, I didn't know anything about the motorcycle industry. Um, I had a vision. Um, my vision was to uh, to take people on rides through the uh, American desert or the Western deserts and show them how awesome it is out there. But um, I, I wanted to do it with a certain style, good food and comfortable accommodations in the middle of nowhere. But at that point in time, I didn't have a name. Nobody knew anything about me, my business. I didn't know anything about the motorcycle business. It was a long, arduous uphill climb. And times I'm sure where you feel like maybe I should just give this up. I, I get many times. I, I thought I should have just started flipping houses. <laughs> <laughs> However, eventually we got some traction. I can tell you that story if you want. or I, I'm Yeah, I'm curious. Little... I'd like to hear this. Well, here's the um, here's, here's the real truth of the matter. Um, I, I the only thing I really knew about the motorcycle world kind of harkened back to my dirt bike days. So I thought, gosh, you know, I want to provide these tours to show off um, the Mojave Desert mostly because that's what I love and that's where I'm uh, most comfortable. And I thought, what demographically, who's the client? Um, you know, and I like I said, I I like to do things with a certain style food, uh, wine with dinner. I had this vision of, of dining underneath the stars on, you know, white linen with China, good wine, a good meal in the middle of freaking nowhere. And then get up the next morning and ride bikes hard and get dirty and then do the same thing again the next night, get a hot shower, have dinner under the stars. So I put together this, this business model, but I thought, 
demographically, who's the client that could or might be interested in this? And I sort of gravitated toward the BMW crowd. And so I then approached BMW dealers here on the West Coast of the U.S. And I said, you know, I would just walk in the door and ask for the owner and tell them my story and say, look, I'd like to work with you to draw your GS riding clients toward me um, and, uh, and take them for an adventure. And uh, slowly we began to get a trickle of, of GS owners coming to us. And this, of course, realized, too, this is back, you know, this is 15 years ago now. Um, and the adventure bike world was nowhere near as robust as it is today. But nonetheless, you know, BMW was selling quite a number of them. And universally, these guys were not very good off-road riders. And um, so I began quizzing them. I'm saying, how come uh, you know, you're a GS guy and here you're on a dirt bike tour and you're struggling. What's the issue? And pretty universally, uh, I would be informed by the owner that, uh, gosh, you know what? The GS is a great bike, but, you know, I don't want to drop it. It's too expensive. Uh, the sales guy told me it really wasn't an off-road bike in spite of the advertising. And as I heard these stories, I thought to myself, you know, there's a market here to teach people how to ride those things. And then you want to talk about serendipity. About a month after I had that little realization, there was an article in uh, the BMW Owners News, the club magazine for, uh, for the MOA. And uh, that article was lamenting the fact that BMW had off-road training centers in nine countries and nothing in the United States. And that was like light bulb clicked on. And I'm saying, okay, if BMW actually has their own schools in other countries, I didn't know anything about that. So I did some research and, uh, and found out that, yes, indeed, they did have schools in other countries, England, Japan, Australia, South Africa, Germany. I said, there's room in the U.S. for this. So I hung out a shingle to offer up training specifically to GS owners, and I began to push that through uh, the BMW dealerships of the West, and it slowly grew, and now here we are today. So that's the that's the snapshot backstory. And, and at one point, BMW knocks on your door, I assume. So we ran. So here again, talk about f good fortune and serendipity. Um, when I finally hung out the shingle as a training center, um, I had no rental bikes. I had a very small physical infrastructure, but by luck, I happened to get a journalist in my very first class, and he wrote a, a very complimentary article about what we did and what the experience was like, and that actually opened the doors. And uh, so that article, I leveraged the dickens out of that for a couple of years, and, and this is 2003 and a half at the point that that article came out. So between 2004 and 2008, I worked hard to promote our services to the BMW dealers of the West and began moving eastward a little through the Rockies and New Mexico and Arizona. And um, in 2008, October of 2008, um, I was approached by BMW with the sort of the precursor, Jim, we've heard a lot about you from our dealers. We understand you do a really good job and we'd like to know if you'd like to become part of the BMW family. And after I stopped pinching myself, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you bet I would. And we get kind of came out of the blue. It was just, it was, it was one of those random phone calls one afternoon. And I was like, wow, I'd rather be lucky than smart any day. Well, so what's the key to your success if you dare share it? Well, it's a couple of things. Um, at Rawhide, I can offer something that no other training center in the United States or North America can offer. Um, and that is a, a, an experience the like of which none of the other schools provide. Um, I have a 2,500 acre facility in Southern California that has every bit of the type of terrain you will ever face anywhere in the world except in a jungle. Um, to offer as a place to develop skills. But on top of that, we have our own restaurant, our own bar, our own accommodations right here on the property. Um, 
all the other schools around the country, you know, you either have to camp and you're on public land usually, um, or they may have a facility of their own, but there's not a lot of extras. Um, they don't really provide accommodations or meal service or anything else. And so we've been able to create a vibe here that is just remarkable. I, it, it, it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn pretty loudly when I'll say what I'm about to say, but I cannot tell you how many people have come up to me and said things like, Jim, I have not had so much fun since I was a six-year-old at Disneyland. Or I, I've had you know men in their 50s say, you know what, I have been so bored with my life the last 10 years, because all I do is work and, you know, do whatever. This is a breath of fresh air. You changed my life. And I hear, I hear comments like that. And I just say, you know what, we're doing, we're doing a good thing here. The bar and restaurant, is that open all the time or is it only for your guests? No, it's, we're, we're really a private facility. Uh, we don't do anything except uh, operate for our guests when we have our structured classes or tours or whatever. So no. 2,500 acres. I mean, that's a huge chunk of land. You got to put a lot of people through to make that worthwhile. Well, it's a, a long story um, again, uh, but it's family property. My parents bought this place just after my father returned home from World War II. Um, they wanted someplace quiet. And uh, so they bought this place. Um, and you know, it's unobtainium today. I mean, mm -hmm. to find 2,500 acres in Southern California, no one could probably afford to buy a place like this to open a motorcycle training school. The numbers yeah. just don't make sense. But since it's family property, I'm, I'm using it in a good way. And, uh, everybody loves it when they come here. It's a beautiful facility. So what is Rawhide today? What, what, what sort of trips do you offer? What sort of instruction do you offer? Uh, today, I, what I call Rawhide is we are a lifestyle company because I can offer something to anybody in the adventure motorcycle market, regardless of where they're at in the in the life cycle of their involvement. Um, so we offer three levels of training. Currently, we're working on a fourth tier, but the three levels of training we offer are basically what we call intro to adventure, which is a a program designed for street riders that uh, are curious and want to explore the adventure bike scene. So it's a pretty low level class. It focuses on balance and control and how to ride gravel roads and how to effectively turn and climb hills and things like this. Uh, so that's level one. Our level two class we call the next step. And it's a class that's aimed at guys who've either got basic skills and want to improve them or people who've already taken level one. And the, the best way to explain it to a layperson is to say it's the difference between a graded road in a national park and a Jeep two track somewhere out in the back country. So in level two, we're teaching you how to deal with narrower pathways, how to confront and get over obstacles, how to, how to maintain a higher pace of, of speed because in the real early stages of anybody's learning, they go pretty slow. And so, you know, a novice rider uh, that is just getting started may, may think that a 40 mile off-road day is a full day. But if you really wanna cover any distance, you gotta be comfortable moving at speeds between 35 and 60 um, in the backcountry. And so um, our level two class is more technical terrain, tighter trails, increased speed. That's the best way to synopsize it. Um, and level three is an expedition preparedness program. So it's a five-day uh, program that covers all of the other things that we really don't cover in the how to ride the bike classes. We talk about navigation and field repair and first aid and communication, as well as some advanced riding skills. And that's, again, that's a five-day program. Um, so that's our training portfolio, if you will. And then we run tours all over the world. Um, Iceland, South America, we've been to, uh, we've been to South Africa, Namibia. Uh, we've got a full list of tours that run all over the place on our website. But some of my favorite things are right here in North America. Um, a lot of folks think that due to the mechanization 
of, uh, of North America that there's not as much adventure to be had here as there are in other places in the world. But I got to tell you, that's not true. Um, more than more than 50 percent of the access uh, in the U.S. anyway uh, is unpaved roads or worse. So there's a lot of wonderful things to see out there. So we do a lot here in, in, in the U.S. and North America as well. Next, we've got our rider skills. We're going to talk about dropping the bike and all those things to go with it. Stay with us. Well, you want to mark this on your calendar, February 9, 10, and 11, coming right up here just a, you know, a couple of weeks away. The Timonium Motorcycle Show is being held at the Maryland State Fairgrounds in Timonium, Maryland. So it's at 2200 York Road. Now, uh, the website is www.cycleshow.net and uh, you can buy advanced tickets by going to their website. But um, what's really important about this, this is a big bike show, but they have a huge adventure section here for us adventure motorcyclists. Travel, touring, and adventure area is what they call it. Now, this should be well worth attending. They've got a great lineup of presenters there, including Simon and Lisa Thomas. You've heard them on this show before. Um, 14 years, I think, around the world now, traveling continuously on their motorcycles. Sam Manicom, of course, you know Sam from our Raw show. Steph Jevons, she's also been on the show. Alisa Clickinger, they're all going to talk about their, their past travels and whatever they're doing now as far as travel and adventure goes. There's also going to be touring experts. Uh, maybe if you've got a bucket list of adventures, they're going to have Ayers Adventures, uh, Beaches Motorcycle Adventures, Idlewise Bike Adventures, uh, Silver Seed Motorcycle Adventures, and Rally for Rangers, the nonprofit organization. So there's a lot going on there. If you're into a, a motorcycle show, and who isn't for February? I mean, it's the time to get out there, kick some tires, look at what's going on there. They've got a, a ton of other things going on as well. Drop by their website, www.cycleshow.net. Now you get the advanced tickets online, you're going to save seven bucks off the price. But if you go to the door, obviously you're going to pay the, the door price. So get them in advance. And of course, when you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.cycleshow.net. Now, before you start heading out on your adventures in the next coming months, I guess, as summertime starts to come back to North America, there's something that I highly recommend you do to your bike that I've done to my bike. And that is look at the IMS foot pegs. IMS has a, a complete set of foot pegs for our adventure bikes. Um, they're made of 17-4 stainless steel. They're cast certified. These, these pegs are made to outlast your bike. I remember when I had Scott Wright on here talking about IMS, and he was telling me that some of the, the things that they did to abuse these foot pegs in the testing phases were to put the pegs in a, a press that literally crushes the pegs down sideways until the center is touched. I mean, you could, you could never do this without a press. But anyway, he said when they let the press out, the peg just sprung back to the original state with just some marks on it. It shows you the kind of toughness uh, or, the, or the durability that goes into these pegs. And the thing is with them is it's not just about durability. It's about design. I've talked before about the width and where the width is added, but there's so much more to it. They've got a watershed design. We, even the other day when I was out into some muddy stuff and I get a little bit of mud in the foot peg and it just it drops away instead of jamming in there. The pegs are actually designed with that inner angle so that the mud tends to fall away rather than stick there. It's all those things that make a quality peg. And Let's face it, when you're standing on your bike, your pegs are super important. Get away from those rubberized pegs that you've got from the factory and get yourself a serious set of pegs. www.imsproducts.com. That's www.imsproducts.com. And of course, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Okay, now it's time for the rider skills segment for today. And we, of course, we have Jim Hyde, who I've already been speaking with. And we're going to talk about, well, dropping your bike. Well, for our rider skills, you're our instructor for this today. And you had a, a great topic. H how do you approach this topic? Is, is this one of the first things you talk about with people when they come to your school? 
It's actually the very, <laughs> shall we tell them what the topic is? I think we should. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's the whole concern about dropping your bike. And yes, it's the very first thing that we teach in our basic level class is how to pick your bike up when you drop it. Right. And now the thing is when, with adventure bikes, we all know, I mean, if you've ridden adventure bikes for very long and you've been through different types of terrain, you're going to drop the bike. You can't get around it. But there's a lot of things that, that come with um, the dropping of the bike, isn't there? I mean, the ego thing, I mean, if anybody's ridden street, you, you, mean, you never want to drop your street bike. There's a lot of psychological things to overcome with this, isn't there? Yes, there are. And um, we've actually uh, come up with a a way of defusing all of that here in class. And uh, before we ever get started, we, uh, we tell all of our students that we actually celebrate drops and falls. And so uh, what we want everybody to do, and this is an instruction to the class, it's like, folks, if you see one of your classmates drop his bike, I want everybody to whoop and holler and lay on the horn. Um, and uh, that takes away all of the embarrassment. You know, because everybody's laughing, everybody, everybody's going to do it. And so um, that's how we treat it in class. But in, in the real world, yeah, there are a lot of things involved. And in fact, as if you recall from earlier in the chat here, um, when I very first started asking uh, GS owners specifically um, 15 years ago why they didn't take their bikes off road more, they, the, the number one answer is that they don't want to drop it. So there's, there's a lot of, of things to, to deal with in this whole dropping. So what, what should we talk about first? Well, hang up. Before we get into that, I was just going to mention that, I mean, I did some looking around about dropping your bike to see what sort of questions people ask. And there's a lot of information on the internet where people will say, don't drop your bike because if you do, it could need an engine rebuild. You could crack your frame. I mean, there's all types of, of varying opinions or, or supposed stories that people have of dropping their motorcycles. How real is that with today's bikes? That's pretty bogus, to be honest with you. Um, so here at, at Rawhide, I've got, um, I have 48 brand new BMWs this year, uh, but we've, we've been using them. Uh, BMW has provided us with a fleet for the last eight years. And those bikes get dropped hundreds of times during the year that we own them before we have to sell them. And out of the hundreds and hundreds, I will say now thousands of drops, I can't think of a single engine we've had to rebuild. And I can absolutely positively promise you we've never broken a frame. Um, there's a difference between a drop and a crash. Now we can, we can go into that. Yeah, let, let's, let's talk about that to begin with. Sure. To me, a drop is the most common balance failure uh, in the adventure riding thing. Um, and it's really simply because a rider's you know, moving fairly slow. They're, they're coming to a stop or usually coming to a stop or trying to perform some slow speed maneuver. And they just lose their balance or their front wheel rolls up on a rock and then kicks sideways a little bit. And they just that 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 little sideways slip causes them to drop the bike. Um, five miles an hour or less is a drop. Ten miles an hour and above to ten to fifteen is a minor crash. And then you know if you're doing twenty thirty miles an hour and, you, and the bike goes down, that's a real crash. Real crashes cause damage. I have rarely seen anything other than a bent crash bar in the fifteen mile an hour range, and the five mile an hour drops. The only real probable damage comes from one of two areas. Um, if you do not have valve cover protectors on your bike, there is a chance that a pebble or a sharp stone uh, th that hits just right can crack the valve cover, causing an oil leak, which obviously needs to be repaired. Um, and, and the only other way, the only possible way that an engine can go south because of a drop is if the owner is laying there kind of shaken and just lets the engine run while the bike is laying on its side and he thinks that it can run for three or four minutes without damage. That's not the case. You, you need to turn your motor off pretty quick or you can score 
the uphill cylinder uh, because there's no lubrication. All the oil falls to the downhill side of the motor. Um, those are the only two things that are going to happen. So when you're, you're talking about valve covers, you're talking about the R1200 in particular because it has the cylinder out the side, not necessarily for other makes of bike. That's correct. Um, okay, okay, so let's let's look at that. I, I mean, as far as a drop goes, quite often, and I think you'd probably agree with this, that, that most times w- when you're doing those drops, when people are doing a slow speed maneuver or something, it's almost one of those drops where you slightly ease the bike down. Is that the case? It, that can be. Um, we don't really recommend that people try to ease it down. You're going to hurt your back. Um, it's it's the bikes are tough. Um, even even like the um, oh the Africa Twin, the V Stroms, um, the the Yamaha Super Tenere's, the they don't have the cylinders that stick out sideways. But crash protection is available for all of them. And if people are going to get into this world, they need that. But you can still. If the bike's going to fall, let it fall. You might break a clutch lever, um, but that's about it. And you can replace that fairly quickly, whereas fixing your back is, well, the older we get, the longer it takes. <laughs> well, and even if you just pull a muscle and then, you're, you know, you've ruined your day, you know, then you're going to be in pain for the rest of the day. So um, we teach people if they start to lose it, just step off the bike and let it go down. Well, well, let's talk about the minor issues of the drop. You mentioned the broken brake lever. You talked about the stone on the R1200s. What other sort of things could you expect from a, a minor drop? There's some variables there. It depends on, you know, are you in, in the brush? You know, um, you well, know, Jim, you... Jim, hang on. Before we go any further with this, let's just, let's just only talk, when we're talking about this drop, let's only talk about that, that almost stopped drop and not so much anything that's considered a crash. So I think you said five okay. kilometers yeah. or five miles and less. Uh, yeah, five miles an hour or less. The only real, the variables are, you know, if you're out in the bushes somewhere, you know, a, a random stick can get up into the wiring and, you know, maybe pull a connector off. Um, a, a, you know, and I'll give you a great example of the minor issue uh, of a drop. Um, well, no, sorry, actually, that's not a minor. I, we poked a hole in a valve cover on a ride in Argentina I was doing. Um, and it was a zero mile an hour drop. We had a really heavy side wind and one of my friends pulled up next to me. We were going to chat. He, he uh, put a foot down, but there was so much wind blowing. He lost his footing. The bike wasn't moving forward. It just fell over, but it fell on a sharp rock and the valve covers are fairly brittle, poked a hole in the valve cover. And we had to sit there for four hours and 50 mile an hour wind in Southern Argentina while the, uh, the plastic epoxy dried <laughs> so that we could carry on. But honestly, low speed drops, you might bust a windshield if there was a rock that was sort of sticking up and the bike fell against it. You bust a valve lever, you can poke a hole in a valve cover. That's it. There's, you know, scratch the paint maybe, but there's nothing major will ever happen on an adventure bike from a low speed drop. I, it's a freak accident if something else happens. It's a freak incident. Because really what's taking the impact is, I guess, mainly your handlebar, isn't it, is taking the impact. And then maybe if you have bags on the back, if not, it'll be the back of the bike. Yeah, the bags, uh, even, you know, soft bags, hard bags, whatever, that keeps the backside of the bike up. If you're on a, a, a Moto Guzzi or a, uh, a BMW, the cylinders will keep the bike up. Um, on the narrower bikes, the handlebar is probably going to hit. Um, and then fold over. You can bend the handlebar perhaps a little bit, but uh, again, I've never seen anything major in the thousands of drops I've witnessed at our school. Now, you mentioned that you do not recommend easing your bike down for injury. So what other sort of things are, that can happen by trying to fight that drop? And I, and I think a lot of us do it because it's that thing of you want to try and ease the bike down. And I see a lot of people do it. And I know I do it myself in a lot of instances. Well, yeah. So there's there's two or three things that can happen uh, from an injury standpoint. One, it depends on your footing. If your foot slips and you've got a tremendous load on it, and at the same time you've got another 500 pounds of motorcycle that you're trying to ease down, uh, you can tear a ligament in your knee. Um, it only takes about 60 pounds of lateral force to completely dislocate a knee. So you, you got to bear that in mind. Um, people's fitness levels, depending on age and, and fitness, uh, hurting your back is a big part of that. And uh, you can rupture a disc at the worst and at the, you know, at the, at the most, 
moderate, you, you can pull a muscle. And once you pull a muscle in your back, you are not going to be comfortable for the rest of the day. And hopefully you're not on an extended ride someplace you're away from home. So to me, I, I just choose to drop my bike all the time because it's just not worth it. And for people who think that they can ride weeks on end without putting themselves in a situation where their bike is probably going to drop, that's kind of ludicrous. I mean, if you're really going to ride off-road, the potential exists all the time. A rock you roll up on may slip sideways. You think you can get out of a rut, but you can't. Suddenly, suddenly you get hooked in harder. Whatever. Just so much easier. Just drop it. Collect your wits. Pick the bike back up and go. If you let it go, you're not going to get hurt. As we sort of talked a little bit about at the start here about um, the whole pride and ego thing, you said that you you do a thing where you get everybody to, to cheer and, and lay on the horn, et cetera, to sort of remove that. It is a big thing, isn't it, ego? I mean, if you're out riding with your friends or whatever, how should we be looking at dropping the bike? Should we be looking at it as, hey, it's just that that is what you do. If you head out here, that's what's going to, I mean, basically, if you're going to hike the woods, you're probably going to get wet feet. Or do we look at it as, um, hey, maybe you're not that great of a rider because you happen to drop your bike? Well, that may be part of it. Um, you know, the better you get, the less you will drop your bike. But um, there should there should simply never, never be ego or pride involved in this. It's not worth it. That's I mean, although I tell you, um, I can share a, a short story with you uh, of, of the absolute worst case of ego. Um, years ago, Harley Davidson, through their Buell division, uh, produced their um uh, a semi-adventure bike they called the Ulysses. And it was Buell's attempt at a dual sport motorcycle. And we had the pleasure of hosting the press launch for that bike. And uh, we, we conducted it with the launch here at our property in SoCal. And as you can imagine from the Harley world, when uh, Harley sends out all their invitations to the press, most of the people that get that invitation are from the street side of Harley. So we had all these guys showing up in half helmets with leather chaps with fringes and stuff, and they're going to ride an adventure bike. And um, the very first exercise that we wanted them to do was just get comfortable standing up on the bike and taking a lap around an enclosed arena. And this one gentleman hops on the bike and followed the instructions. He stood up, and the minute he went into a turn, he was just doing the wrong thing, and he dropped the bike. And without so much as looking back, he just walked off the field, headed for his car. And I'm like, where are you going? And he, he goes, I have never dropped a bike in my life. This is not for me. And he got in his car and left. And he was a journalist, for goodness sake. So that's the essence of ego. You know, instant, <laughs> quit instantly because you're too embarrassed to carry on. Um, so, you know, Jim, people that are going to engage in this sport need to come to terms with the fact that they are absolutely going to drop their bike. And there's there's no there's no lost pride in that happening. It it's part of our world. And really, that's what the adventure bike is for. I mean, it's not necessarily for dropping, but it is for rough use. Absolutely. And th there's a lot of guys out there. Um, in fact, 80 some percent of the buyers of adventure bikes at this point in time, don't really do very much um, with it along the lines of what it was intended to be used for. They, they use them as commuters. They go to the office. I think most of them think and hope someday they'll begin to use the machine. But for whatever reason, there's a lot of, of non-use of adventure bikes by owners. So when we get into a situation where the bike is going to go down, that slow speed turn, like you said, the rock uh, that moves, you lose your balance, you stall the bike, all those situations where it's going to go down, what do we do? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to get off the bike. <laughs> and we are going to make sure that our foot or our leg is not underneath the bike at the point where it's going to hit. A lot of folks ride along praying that they're not going to drop their bike. And I would say, don't worry about that. There's a couple easy dismount techniques, and um, I can dive into that if you'd like. Yeah. 
All right. So here's the deal. Let's just assume we're, we're kind of easing our way through some rocky terrain. And uh, uh, maybe we have a foot down to steady ourselves and we're trying to just roll the, the front wheel over um, volleyball-sized rocks in front of us. And we've got 30 or 40 feet we have to navigate. And then we're going to carry on. Rocks are really unpredictable. You don't know how well embedded they are in the soil beneath. So a lot of times what will happen is front wheel is going to start to roll up over an obstacle. And as your front wheel comes up, the distance to the ground gets further. So that for a moment there, you may not be able to keep your foot down to steady you. And all of a sudden that rock slips sideways and the bike is six inches higher in the air than it is normally. And you really don't have the ability to have your leg down there to stabilize you. And so you're suddenly, you got a zero speed drop coming up here. Your front wheel has just slipped. You know you're going to lose it. Bike is going to fall to the left. That's where you see it. It's starting to fall to the left. What you want to do is spread your legs as wide as you can. Get your left leg out of the way and let the bike kind of fall between your legs. Now, most people can't spread their legs that wide. But as the bike starts to go down, you've made sure that your, your left leg is out of the way. And you would just flop over onto your back because by by falling backwards, your left leg will stay out of the way and your right leg will come up in the air and probably land on top of the bike when everything settles down. But the the thing that happens a lot of times is people will struggle for the to the very end to try to keep the bike up. But by that time, weight is bearing down on their leg and they they can't move it. So then the bike comes down on their leg. And when 600 pounds of adventure bike lands on your ankle, it hurts, regardless of what kind of boot you got on. Mm. Okay, so um, basically, we're, we're letting it fall over. And I think from what you're saying, probably a good rule of thumb would be is that you always want to get the weight off of the, the leg that the bike is falling on. So, so you don't want any weight on that leg. So when the bike falls down, it actually pushes your leg out of the way. If the, if if you're going to fall to the left, if the bike looks like it's tipping to the left, just simply spread your left leg, kind of get it out eight inches, 10 inches away from the foot peg. Let the bike come down. It's at that point, the bike is most likely going to brush your leg, but you need to kind of fall backwards. You just got to get off of it. Now, if you're on flat terrain, maybe you're making a turn of some type. Um, and you just weight the peg the wrong way and the front wheel slips a little, 90% chance you can actually just throw your left leg down on the ground and run away from the bike. And uh, I saw some great examples of that this weekend at our training class. Uh, a lot of times turns are where people drop the bike. You know, they, uh, they let it lean in too far. They don't counterbalance properly, whatever. Um, and the front wheel slips a little and down goes the bike. At that point, if it's flat terrain, it's so easy to just step off and go, darn, I screwed that up. Now, what about um, preventing damage, you know, mitigating at least to begin with? What sort of things can we do in, as far as prepping the bike to lessen our chance of damage when we drop the bike? Well, the number one thing is, uh, is crash bars. Um, and there's a ton of companies that make them. Um, for the, the GS and the water-cooled bikes, uh, radiator guards are an important addition. Um, for those who ride in really rocky terrain, a good solid skid plate is important. Um, and then to um, you can upgrade your, your uh, handlebars if you are concerned about that. There's a company called ProTaper that makes bars for most of the bikes. Um, you can also buy... Uh, hand guards that have a metal band in them. Most of the hand guards that come from the factory are just nothing but plastic. But I know one company in particular, Barkbuster, uh, makes a, a hand guard with a metal band in there. So that'll protect the levers um, and luggage. You know, you can put um, you can put luggage on now. Aluminum luggage, if you drop it a lot, tends to bend up and get misshapen. But you could uh, get some soft luggage and. That usually, if you're carrying gear in there, that helps keep the bike up off the ground a little bit. Uh, but those are the main things. You mentioned luggage there at the end, which is interesting because I think a lot of people think that, well, if you're going to do any sort of technical dirt stuff, the first thing you want to do is is chuck your luggage. Now, for myself, I have soft bags on my bike, and I consider them sort of a bit of my bike protection because they absorb some of the impact. So They do. And do you recommend leaving the luggage on when somebody's doing dirt stuff? Well, 
I have a philosophy about that, which I'll share if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't go anywhere on my bike without being prepared to spend the night because you just never know. Um, and that evolves from a trip we did in Mexico a few years ago where we thought that we would make it to the hotel by three or four in the afternoon. And we sent our support truck with our panniers in the truck around a long way on a paved road. And we ended up getting stuck out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and because uh, the river had risen to the point we couldn't get through it and there was no way to turn back. And so we had to spend the night rough with nothing because we had sent our panniers <laughs> with the truck. And, uh, I just decided at that point for myself personally, I would learn how to ride with the panniers and I would keep everything with me that I need from tools to, uh, to a little bit of food and a little tiny camp stove and, and some rain gear and all the other things that are the what if things you carry with you. Um, and I have learned just to ride with my panniers and I deal with it. Yes, they're a little heavier. And yes, if you don't ride correctly uh, and you put a foot down as your bike is coming forward, your pannier can come up and clip you in the back of the leg and it hurts. But um, to me, that's it's a worthwhile. What's the word I'm looking for? I, I mean, I'll, I'll put up with the panniers to have everything I need just in case. Now, we're just about to give you an exercise to um, practice dropping your bike. But before you do that, it would be good to get a couple of friends to help you out and lay the bike down carefully before you drop it and just make note of anything that could end up breaking. If you've added auxiliary lights or maybe your direction signals hang out uh, or something that may get damaged when you go to drop it. You need to pay attention to that first, I think, before you go into this next exercise. So do that first and then practice dropping it. So now you mentioned you had a, a sort of an exercise if somebody wants to, if in particular, if they haven't dropped their bike or maybe they've only done it a couple of times, they're really not comfortable with it, a way that may be able to, to instill confidence in themselves in doing this. I do. And, and again, you know, to recap the, the topic here of dropping your bike and getting comfortable with it, um, there's a mental thing that has to happen first. You just have to ask yourself, why did I buy one of these things? Okay, this is a rough and tumble motorcycle. It's it's not a frail little flower. This is a tough piece of gear. So you have to say to yourself, I am willing to accept the consequences of dropping my bike. Once you've gotten over that mental hurdle, then the the actual practice, all you need to do is is take one or two or three furniture blankets and lay them down maybe on the floor of your garage, but preferably on your front lawn. Lay them down along one side of the bike. And then the best way to do this, it's a quick thing you have to do, but so your furniture blankets are on the left side of your bike. You're sitting there on your bike in a single step or a single motion. You stand up on the bike real quickly, but leaning to the left a little bit. So get your right leg up on the foot peg, stand up. And then as the bike falls to the left, just move your leg out of the way. Just move your leg 12 inches to the left of the foot peg. And as the bike tips over to the left, there will be a point where your foot touches the ground and you're actually standing for just a second. And then as your foot hits the ground, your right leg comes off the peg and fall backwards. Now, if you want to have a soft landing, put a couple furniture blankets out for yourself as well. Um, otherwise, wear your wear your armored riding jacket and your helmet and go ahead and fall. And uh, you can do it to the other side as well. Left, right. Um, doesn't matter. Just put some padding down to protect the bike if you're concerned about scratching it and a little extra for preventing bruises. And that's a great way to test and practice falling. Uh, and once you've done it a couple of times, then you'll realize, wow, that's no big deal. At your school, do you have people drop the bike right off the bat or do you wait for it to happen? Well, we usually just, again, so here's um, here's an interesting thing I just thought of. By the time you've decided to sign up for an off-road school, you've probably decided it's okay to drop your bike. 
because all the videos that are online about rawhide at one point or another show a bike laying on its side. So if you're willing to take the risk to come to a school, you, you figure you're going to drop your bike. So we talk about what to do. I explain it very much like I just did. And then we wait for it to happen. And then we all cheer and we yell and we go over and we help the guy pick his bike up and we slap him on the back and we dust off his butt and he gets back on the bike and goes or she. If it's a she, we don't dust off their butt. We let them do that. Before we wrap things up, then um, we've learned how to basically let the bike fall down and get out of the way. We've figured out a way here to practice it on our own. Do you have any tips for, because we talked about these, these mainly these drops are happening at very low speeds. Do you have any tips for how to prevent it to begin with? Like things that you see those, you know, maybe two or three things that you see always go wrong. You know, like people always do this and they always end up dropping their bike from that. Do you have that? Well, I can give you a couple of ideas. Um, th- th- there's lots of reasons why people drop their bikes. One of the biggest things that happens in the early stages of people's learning to ride is that they aren't reading the terrain in front of them very well. They target fixate on things. And so one of the, one of the you know, target fixation, you stare at it, you're going to hit it. So if there's a rock in their way and they start looking at it going, oh, I better try to avoid that rock. The more they look at it, the more certainty they're going to hit it. Mm-hmm. So learning how to read the terrain, then picking the line they want to ride and actually riding it is a big, big step towards avoiding unintentional dismounts. Um, and frankly, taking a class, just simply learning all the principles of riding would help tremendously. But that's a bit of a shameless pitch for what we do. Um, but honestly, just practice getting comfortable. Um, a lot of people, I would say a lot of riders make more mistakes than they need to because they're nervous. And so just getting, getting comfortable with whatever it is you're going to do will alleviate an awful lot of drops. But when people are nervous, they tend to drop the bike more. Well, Jim, thank you very much. Great to talk to you. And we're going to have to get you back on again. It was delightful to be with you today. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I would love to chat more with you at some point in the future. I've been speaking with Jim Hyde, owner and operator of Rawhide Adventures. You can find out more about what he does at www.rawhide-offroad.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. that about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and to you of course the listener thank you very much for listening and being a part of this show well i would like to direct you to our website www.adventureriderradio.com we have the show notes for this episode and all our episodes there you can download all the episodes right from the site or anywhere that you find podcasts but if you go to our website in particular you're going to notice something we're doing differently this year um, as of january we're starting to transcribe all of our shows so if you're interested in reading what you've heard drop by the website and look at the show notes and you'll be able to pick up any sort of little tidbits of information that you're looking for This show has been built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. So if you'd like to, 
think about it when you, you know, when you buy a cup of coffee or a donut or something like that and the pleasure you get from that and maybe compare it to the pleasure you get from this show and consider dropping by the website and supporting the show. So you can just click on the support button at www.adventureriderradio.com. A bunch of different ways to support. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our Raw show. And um, there's different ways to do it as well. We've got Patreon that we signed up for at the um, at the uh, suggestion of, of listeners, uh, many listeners actually. So you can click on that and you can sign up for monthly support, which is great because that makes all the difference for us. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. Thanks very much. My name is Jim Martin. See you next week. Hi, this is Fonzie, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 